Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you! More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all, with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Welcome back to episode three of the Writer's Guide to Rural Life. I'm J. Daniel Sawyer. And I'm Kitty Nakian. So last time I promised we were going to talk about defense in depth, which was something we covered in the first episode, with regards to being on the grid and having an established house and all those things. This came to mind for me because there's been this lovely little Twitter controversy the last few weeks about how gas stoves are polluting our indoors. And <laughs> they should be outlawed and everybody should be on electricity. So um, let's talk a little bit about that because we have, this is the first time we've lived off grid in parts rural. We have lived three other places on grid in parts rural. And let me tell you what kind of a kick in the teeth that is. <laughs> Let's talk about off-grid first. When you're off-grid, you're managing your own utilities. One, At least one of them. You're your own utility company. In our case, it's all of them. It's water, it's power, um, it's gas. We have to deal with all of that ourselves. We don't get anything piped to us of any kind. We're completely off the grid, and hopefully we won't ever be that. We won't always be that way because it is kind of inconvenient. At some point, we're going to have a well. At some point, we're going to connect the electrical grid up, and that will be luxurious. But it's not something we're going to depend on. Because something that happens, you'll, you'll have heard the, the truism, I'm sure, that every city is three days away from a civil war because they keep three days of stock on hand for food and fuel and whatnot. Out here, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Out here, there's a reason everybody keeps a month of everything on hand at least, and it's not just because of supply chain interruptions. Or I should say it's not just because of what you think of when you hear the term supply chain interruptions. Out here, the grid and the water supply are extremely fragile. Extremely fragile. Um, and there's not a lot of resources to repair it when it goes down. When someone loses power here, unless they're on a main road... They can be without power for a week to two weeks. Because first you have to send the crews out to find where the line went down. And then you have to schedule all the repairs because it's never one line that goes down. Lines go down out here in windstorms and in heavy snowstorms. In windstorms and heavy snowstorms, things break everywhere. Trees get knocked down, limbs get knocked down, power lines get knocked down, all of that. In the city, when something goes offline, it's because there was... A mechanical failure in a distribution plant, or someone ran into a power pole, or there was an earthquake that took everything offline, 
And they have to scramble, but they're extremely well provisioned to deal with that kind of stuff. Or occasionally, if you live in San Bruno, the ground blew up because the gas pipes were leaking. Um, but that's PG&E for you. Uh, on the other hand, um, a power outages in in urban parts are more likely to take out entire regions and yep. several states sometimes. Yeah. Whereas yeah. here, you are likely to have a power outage that affects... One road. Yeah. Um, but that also means that the stuff in urban regions gets fixed faster. In the 87 quake, we were without power for a day and a half um, in San Francisco. It was pretty rough, and we were living off canned food, and we were cooking over a propane camp stove. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we were in Maine, while we were on a, basically the second main road... Like, you had Main Street, and we were off of the main tributary from Main Street. Yep. So we pretty much had priority when it came to power outages and whatnot. But, but even we, so, we did lose power for four or five days at a time, quite regularly. And yeah, A power outage was usually at least 24 hours, and often more than that. Right. So now consider what happens in a power outage. When you get in a power outage, you lose electricity means you also often lose cell service. Even if you don't lose uh, your landline phones, most landline phones now are electrically assisted because they're remote or because they plug in because they have a, uh, an answering machine attached to them or they've got electronic BB buzzies or whatever it is. You also lose everything that's driven, and sometimes you lose the pumping stations for the water because oh, yes. they're not on separate subgrids here like they are in the city. Especially if you're on uh, well water. And if you're on well water, you lose your water like that. That's right. So what happens when the power goes out and your stove is electric? And your heat is electric. Or you have a pellet stove, which, oh, it's not electric because you're burning these pellets. Well, except that it's fed by an electric auger that's controlled by a computer and it's, it, it's driven by a fan. You lose electricity in the winter in a place that gets snow. And if you don't have a wood stove for backup heat, if you don't have a propane-driven cook stove, you're dead. You die. You can die that first night if you don't have a lot of blankets to pile on your bed. I'm not kidding. We had negative 25 up here just a few weeks ago. And we were perfectly comfortable in our little off-grid place, but the power did go down during that cold snap. And we had some friends who we said, if it gets too cold, you come up to our place because we're off the grid, so we've got power because our power doesn't go down. Our power goes away if there are too many really cloudy days in a row, but it doesn't go down. And even if it does, we've got firewood. We've got a wood stove. And we can cook on the wood stove, and we've got four months of propane at any one time for our cook stove. And we also live in a forest so mm-hmm. if we run out of the firewood that is cut... We can cut more, and it's not nearly as good because it hasn't dried, but mm-hmm. it'll keep us alive. And when you're used to having everything delivered to your house through pipes, your gas, your electric, your water, you look out at people who live in rural parts, and you think how horribly vulnerable you are. Because your gas is a propane tank, and your heat is a wood stove, and and wood stoves can catch on fire and they can burn your house down, which is true. There's maintenance involved to keep that from happening. Wouldn't it be so much easier if you did things our way? Well, the thing is it wouldn't, because the propane 
you refill once or twice a year. The wood that keeps you warm and hot, you refill once or twice a year. You buy the matches to light the fires once or twice a year. So you have a lot of flexibility about when you do things. If prices are too high, well, you got a few months supply left. You can wait. If the grid is down, well, it's inconvenient. You can't get on the internet, but you know what? You're not going to die of cold. You do defense in depth, and the people that are most vulnerable, this sounds really weird, but the people that are most vulnerable out here are the people who are grid connected. Because... And grid reliant. And grid reliant. People who don't have a wood stove, people who don't have a water cistern to back them up. Because those are the people who, when the power goes out in the cold, those are the people who die. And we had people up here die during that cold snap. And, and I, I, I think people in, in Texas understand mm-hmm. this yeah, people right now. In, in texas have a fresh appreciation of this when things are when things are dependable in the city or when you when you live a life where everything is dependable and just in time and delivered to you you don't take those backup precautions because it is once in a blue moon maybe once every 50 or 60 years where a disaster actually endangers life and limb out here that happens three or four times a year and the weird side effect is when that happens out here fewer people as a percentage of the population are in trouble because when it's a normal part of life it becomes part of the baseline of planning for that defense in depth yeah you might have a pellet stove and you might have electric baseboard heating but you know what after your first winter here you get a wood stove everybody i know has gotten a wood stove after the first winter they may never use it but they keep a pile of wood just in case the power goes out they keep a barrel of water just in case the power goes out. Because a 55-gallon barrel of water can serve a family of four for up to two weeks. You have to change your water usage habits. You don't shower. But uh, it can keep you alive for two weeks. As an example, um, sometimes longer. more recent, or for a fairly recent event, that um, winter storm that got us down to minus 25 over here, Mm -hmm. it, it, it hit basically the entire northern half of the... Oh, no, the, it hit uh, Texas, too. They were down to negative oh, nine. It hit all of the northern part and a lot of the central it, it south part. swept right down through the Great Plains. I had a friend in Alabama who couldn't get gas to his uh, furnace because the gas demand was so high because everyone turned their heaters on at once. Oh, and they were wow. doing rolling blackouts. So people in Alabama were dying of the cold. Mm, the example I was going to give is that something like 27 people died in New York City, but almost no one was harmed in the outer New York, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, north central New York, because that's fairly rural. Mm-hmm. And so they've all got those backup systems in place. So when you're out here and you're on the grid, you're still not grid dependent or you don't last long <laughs> and you learn that you learn that lesson your first winter. Everybody does. Um, we have a pair of friends up the road who moved in from Seattle this year, and they were smart enough to amble on down here and say, all right, what do we need to watch out for? And we told them everything we knew, and then we started passing them along to the neighbors who have all been here 40 or 50 years, and they all know better than we do. And then we got to learn quite a bit as it fed back through the system, stuff that you can't find in reference books, like what a bad winter actually looks like here. It's one thing to read the historical climate tables and know how how much snow falls in a given year and how 
cold the temperatures get. It's another thing to talk to someone on the road you live on who tells you, yeah, when this happens, you can get an eight-foot standing snow load, and the only way that you're ever going to survive is if you've parked your car half a mile away where the city plows the road, and then you make sure to walk in and out every time it snows to tamp your trail down. That little tip saved our lives this winter. That brings up another um, redundancy. Mm. You, you always keep lower tech solutions for every problem that you've solved. Yes. Maybe you have a plow truck. Maybe you have a snowblower. But you also have snow shovels and a hand-operated plow. And you have snowshoes. Mm-hmm. And, and cross-country you, skis. And cross-country skis. So you can get out when nothing else works. And you have drag sleds, because if you have to do that and you have to bring supplies in, you don't want to be carrying them through deep snow, so you have a drag sled. Or two. We've got two at the moment. I think next year I want to have four. Yeah, this is the stuff you learn. And you don't just have a winch on your truck, and you don't just have snow chains. You also have a come-along. And you have tow chains, (laughs) so if you get stuck off and you can't get yourself out, you can lash around to a tree and pull yourself out and if you're if the battery in your truck is not good enough to winch yourself out you can hook the come along on and you can pull yourself out with uh, hand levers and if that doesn't work you've got chains where you can lash them to your tow hitch or to your rear axle and then wave at a friendly person coming by and say hey can you pull me out you'll have heard during the nano gang that i spent quite a bit of november pulling people out of ditches <laughs> um and that's you know during the winter, I carry those tow chains in my truck for that reason, so that I can pull people out. Redundancies on top of redundancies. Every system has at least one backup. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the more backups you can have, the better. And the more that you can stack those backups in ways that one new thing will serve multiple purposes, the cheaper it is to do and the easier it is to do. It's hard to justify the third layer of backup when it costs three, four hundred dollars. But if that third layer of backup is something you can use in another area of your life, it becomes really easy to justify because not only are you taking care of that other area, but now you've got extra insulation on this one vulnerability that's kind of important. And if your extra layer of backup is a sixty dollar set of snowshoes, well, that's kind of an easy choice. Yep. So some of this stuff will be familiar to you guys that live in northern climates, but some of it Even in in northern climates in a city, that grid gets fixed fast. It doesn't get fixed fast out here. There just isn't the funding. There isn't the tax base. Our population density is about 1.2 people per square mile. It's not a lot of people around here. And so you have to be prepared no matter how much luxury you have. And grid connection is luxury. That's a luxury that, frankly, most people who live out here have. And anyone who can afford it gets it because it is so much easier than running your own utility company. But you know what else I've seen? I've seen a lot of solar panels around here, even in places where the grid is connected. And everybody has a generator. And everybody has a propane tank. And everybody has a wood pile because... When the grid goes out, you're fucked. In terms of general writing, um, a lot of the the stuff that we've talked about is very specific to northern climate, Mm -hmm. rural living. True. But the same types of redundancies and system backups will be relevant no matter what kind of rural life you're talking about, whether it's in tropical Hawaii or an island or um, the Arizona desert. Yep. In the southwest, it'll change. Your most important issues will be water and uh, sun shelter. 
in Hawaii, it's typhoons and lava. Well, lava, depending on what's, what part, what of part you're in. But typhoons really knock things for six in Hawaii. And uh, everywhere you go, the further you are from the center of civilization, the center always has the highest priority. They're the be- it's the best funded, and the most people live there, so you get the best bang for your taxpayer dollar. Uh, the further you move out from the center, the more you are subjected to the world as it is, as opposed to the technological world that we've built. Now, the truth is, you never, unless you move out to the middle of the Australian outback or something like that, you never actually get away from dependence on supply chains. Unless you're incredibly bloody-minded and you're willing to spend 10 or 15 years working yourself into that state, or you're a survivalist who just moves out to the middle of the middle of nowhere and digs a hole to live in, and knows how to hunt and trap all their own food. You never get away from dependence on the system. But what does happen is the dependability of the system gets less and less reliable the further out you move. And so you become less dependent on the system day to day. And you're interface with the system becomes necessary and vital, but occasional. And you can control the schedule of that occasional, which means you can schedule when you're picking up your fuel. You have to schedule. You have to. But you can schedule what times you're picking up your fuel or what times you're buying your supplies for the times when they are cheapest, because people aren't stocking up for the winter if you're buying that stuff in the spring. So you wind up having a lot of optionality that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I suppose this brings us to the last point, which I didn't intend to discuss, but why not? The last point about living off in rural land, we talked about having your scrap pile earlier. One of the things that happens out in rural land is building scrap piles is actually kind of fun. (laughs) Salvage runs are a thing. Because there's always turnover. The old folks are starting to get rid of a lot of the junk they're never going to use. And the young folks and the transplants who are around are wanting to build their scrap pile up for redundancy. And you make a lot of really interesting friends just by watching ads on, you know, in the local paper and online. And there are local papers out in places like this, by the way, which you don't have in the cities anymore. Um, the local paper and online that say, ah, my husband died and I have a lot of junk that I'm never going to use. Could someone please come get it? Because I don't want to pay a scrap dealer to come pick it up. You can get a lot of stuff that'll take you a long way that way. About half of our current homestead is built from salvage. And it looks good. And you will actually find a lot of opportunities to pick up salvage because it is so expensive to get rid of your garbage here. Yes, that a lot of people would rather have someone come and pick up their scrap metal, pick up their used furniture, yep. pick up old cars, yep. because it would cost them so much to have, to, it removed. to have it taken away, to take it to the dump. Mm-hmm. We, we have two wood stoves right now, one for the office and one for the house. The one for the house was being used as a planter, and we got it for a song. And I had to do a little work restoring it, but... Boy, has it kept us nice and toasty warm. The other one, I built out of an old propane tank that I literally pulled off a garbage heap. And boy, does it keep the office nice and toasty warm. And it's got character, and it gives the thing a sense of place, and it blends in with the aesthetic of the timber joinery and the uh, rough-hewn wood. 
and it works pretty well. Yep. Uh, the roof on this on this office that we're sitting in is made of an old shed. The old those metal sheds that are in someone's backyard. We had a neighbor that moved into a place and wanted a wood shed, and he was trying to figure out how to get rid of the metal shed without having to pay to take it to the dump. And I said, I'll take it, and I dismantled it, and I brought it over here, and it became a roof. It works really well. <laughs> And it looks fine. And those are the kinds of stuff that you can pull off that you just don't think you'd ever have to do in the city. It's not the stuff that, if you're writing a rural life, that you would think of being an option because it's so foreign to the way you do things. Unless you're a maker. Makers in the city are the one group of people that have a real idea of how rural life works because so much of what they do mirrors what you have to do in parts rural. Yeah. Could you think of anything else, or should we wrap up the series? I think we're good to wrap up. So hopefully you guys have found this useful. If you have any questions, of course, send them to feedback at jdsawyer.net or leave a comment on the blog. One of these days, the submission form on the blog will work again, but we haven't been able to get around to it because we are having a lot of dark days, so power is limited. But uh, that's going to be clearing up here in the next week or so as we get out of the dark part of the year. So um, do send in those questions and send in any other questions you've got because we're just getting this train rolling again and we're running thin on the buffer. Thank you very much for coming back after the long absence. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to apply some of the homesteading lessons I've learned to building up the podcast buffer so that doesn't happen again. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. 